All right, we are in week seven, no, week eight, I think, of going through Genesis. And uh, so if you haven't found that in your Bible, uh, it's in the beginning uh, of, the, of the Bible. And uh, so find Genesis chapter four there, because I think it'll be helpful if you follow along. But my name is Robert, and I'm the lead pastor here, and really uh, excited that uh, you all are here to, to hear God's word. Um, We've been looking at the genesis of everything, and we found that, that uh, the, the genesis of everything is God, right? Like self-existent, God with no beginning, no end, creates the world with his words and says, let there be, and there is. And the, the culmination of his creation, his grand finale is human beings, and they're given a special role and a special responsibility to steward the earth and uh, to be procreators and fill the earth with image bearers. And these image bearers have a special relationship with God that no other creation uh, has. And then we saw a rebellion uh, by those human beings where they rejected God's rules, which was not only just breaking rules, but it was breaking relationship with God. And they experienced what God said that they would experience if they broke God's rules, and that was death. Uh, and we talked a lot about that in the last couple of weeks in Genesis chapter 3. And um, we, we saw that it's more, death is more than just physical death, although it includes that, but it's a decreation, a disintegration of the created order. Everything sort of falls apart. And we, we heard that in Genesis 3, and it's a little bit like a bad weather forecast, you know? It's like, you know, weather's going to be bad tomorrow, and you're like, is it though? Is it really going to be bad? And then you drive out on the highway, and you just, you know, your car starts getting hit with, you know, hail and wind, and you're like, yeah, it is really that bad. And this is what this forecast in Genesis 3, uh, we find out in chapter 4, is bad. It's really bad. That sin has, has been sown into the system. Uh, is bad, and it's going to get worse and worse. And so this is Genesis 4. All right, aren't you glad you came? Yeah, glad you came too. Um, and, and so one of the threads, not the only thread, but one of the threads in Genesis 4 is the story of sin. It's like, I mean, it, it shows it in a, in a microcosm, but it has some macro ways of understanding sin in, in general. Um, and so um, the story of sin in this chapter is that, that sin crouches, that sin separates, that sin proliferates, right? It crouches, it separates, it proliferates. So sin crouches. Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel, and now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. That sounds pretty good. Everything's going as planned, seems like. There's procreation happening, and then there's administration happening. Uh, they're figuring out how to work the ground. They're figuring out how to do animal husbandry, and they're able to create food for, for human beings and clothing for human beings. And it, 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 it seems like it's going well, and Cain and Abel are both doing well, like they're taking the wild creation and they're taming it and they're causing it to, to come into some kind of order that actually benefits human thriving. This is what God had said in the opening chapters of Genesis should be done. 
And there's even a mention of God, right? Eve acknowledges that God helped her to bring about the, her, her son, her first son, Cain. And speaking of God, there seems to be some kind of religious practices going on, a means for humans to use to, to relate to God, right? In verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So both of these men are offering up these these, these sacrifices, Abel, he's, he's into animal husbandry, so he has sheep. And so he offers the firstborn of his flock uh, or, you know, of the animals that, that, are, that are birthing new sheep. Um, this becomes prominent in the law code uh, of Israel, this idea of the firstborn of an animal. Uh, you can read it in a lot of places uh, in the opening um, books of the Bible, but here's one, Deuteronomy 12. Verses 5 and 6, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. So he's talking about the, to the future temple where it's going to be. And then he says, and there you shall go to that temple and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, your con contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. So this becomes prominent in the understanding of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Now, what's the big deal about the firstborn of an animal? Well, it's a huge sacrifice. It really is. And it requires a great amount of faith in, in God, right? Uh, you have an animal that you've fed and you've protected, and you, you've protected it from wild animals, and you've nursed it back to health when it got sick, and you kept it from eating stuff that would kill it, and you, it gets old enough to actually procreate, and it has its firstborn, and what do you do with it? Well, if you're able, you offer it up to God as a sacrifice, and that's what he was doing. He was offering up his firstborn uh, sheep there of his animals to God in sacrifice. And this, this is something that, that God received. He received it in a way that was honoring to God. Um, it requires a particular mindset in order to do that. You have to have a believed cosmology that includes a God who is authority over everything and creator over everything and that that creator is good and he has provided the sheep he has superintended the life of the sheep, such as the sheep was healthy enough to actually procreate. And I'm going to trust that God's going to continue to superintend my sheep flock such that it's going to have other sheep that are going to be born. And I'll be able to use those for my future needs. So it requires a particular way of understanding the universe in order to offer up this sheep. That God is good, he's creator, he's the authority over all. Now Cain didn't have quite the same cosmology as Abel. Now, Cain was a farmer, and his version of this would have been to offer up the first fruits. Um, that would be the first harvest of one's crops. Um, and and this, is a, this is a big deal, right? Like, you've, you've, you've worked the ground, you've planted the seeds, you've watered, you've weeded, you've protected from insects and fungus and drought and storms, and you finally get a crop. And what do you do with that first crop? Well, if you offer a first fruits offering, you offer 
it up to God as a sacrifice. You acknowledge God as creator and sustainer and authority and, and worthy of your trust. That if you give that first fruits as an offering to God, there'll be more harvest behind it that will come the next day and the next day and the next day. This also ends up being a large part of the Jewish sacrificial system. Uh, Exodus 23, 19 says this, the best of the first fruits, see the book, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Cain doesn't seem interested in making such a sacrifice. I'm sure Cain knew the stories of God the creator, God the sustainer. I knew, I'm sure he knew the, the story of the rebellion and the things that had happened out of the rebellion. And he's even willing to give a little to the big man upstairs, right? Like he's willing to acknowledge that there is a God and to be religious toward that God. But sacrifice my hard-earned first fruits? Uh-uh. I'm not doing that. Trust the creator and the sustainer? No. No. Put my ultimate hope in God? No. No, I'm not doing that. I must look out for number one. I'm my provider. I can't give away this first fruits. Maybe the tenth fruit, but I'm not giving away the first fruit. And so he's even covering his religious basis, right? He's giving an offering. It's not the best. It's not the first fruits. But he's covering his basis with the big man upstairs. Now, what is the big deal, right? I mean, doesn't God have a whole cosmos? Like, what does he need? You know, Cain's first fruits. But it turns out God actually does care about Cain's relationship with God. He doesn't just care that Cain is stewarding the earth. He cares about his disposition, the disposition of his heart toward God. God lets Cain know that he is not interested in the kind of relationship that Cain is offering. He's looking for something more. He's looking for something deeper. Now, this might be troubling to some. You might be thinking, God's like a perfectionistic parent that's like rejecting a birthday present from a four-year-old. This is not at all what's happening. There's, there's much more that's happening here. God is seeking a particular kind of relationship with Abel and Cain. The relationship is that their full faith and trust would be in God. There's a sense in which God is inviting Cain back to Eden. He's saying, you can come back to this place. You can come back to this place of full faith and trust in the all-powerful, all-good God. Cain's not interested in that kind of relationship. He's mad that God won't align himself with Cain's version of religion. And so what does God do with grumpy little Cain? Well, like a parent of a four-year-old, he has a conversation with Cain. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God parents Cain. He, he shepherds Cain. Like a good pastoral counselor, he asks a question to draw him out. He mentions his nonverbals that he's seeing in the way Cain is presenting to God with his fallen face. Cain doesn't seem interested in chatting with God. God then speaks words of truth to Cain. Do what's right, Cain, and it will go well 
for you. Now, the implication is if you do what's wrong, it will not go well for you. But he explains more than just that. He explains that that there's more going on here, Cain, than meets the eye. Sin is crouching at your door, and it's contrary to you, or it desires to have control over you. Now, sin is breaking God's rules, but yes, it's, it's coming from a source. It's deeper than mere right and wrong decision-making. Sin is dwelling in Cain's body and soul, and like a crouching, predatory animal, it's waiting to strike. And God, in His truth-telling, is saying, Cain, look at this! The sin is crouching, and it wants to kill you! And it is gracious for him to speak those words of truth to him. He's letting him know about some of the deeper dynamics of the fall of human beings, that there's an indwelling condition that has resulted because of the fall. That New Testament writers call this the flesh, the indwelling sin, that we're not just people who do sinful things, we are sinners. We have a condition. Now, the result of this kind of a convo between God and human beings is one of two things. You either see the error of your ways and repent, or you harden yourselves to God and His truth. And then the sin that is crouching and contrary has its way with the human being. You either spiral out of sin and up to God, or you spiral into sin and down towards self. These are the options. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral. And so Cain has this opportunity to do this. Now James uh, chapter 1, verse 14, describes the story of sin this way. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth to death. He uses the picture of conception and the birth of a baby to talk about the spiral down. This giving into temptation with him leads to death, disintegration. So Cain spirals down, way down, way down. This is a stunning verse, Genesis 4, 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when, he, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. It's a short verse, but it's jarring. Now, we don't get to hear much about Cain's internal process as he moves toward that. Uh, but he's angry. We know that. We don't need a clinical psychologist to figure this out, right? He's, he is angry. And when we have been wronged or we think we're wronged, we get angry. And Cain's angry, right? He thinks he's been wronged. And we tend to blame shift when we're angry and we've been treated wrongly or we think we have been treated wrongly. We, protect, we project our anger away from the ones that we're probably truly angry with. He's really angry at God and he's angry at himself, um, but that he just can't let himself think about that. He projects that anger on his brother, his righteous little brother, right? And as he projects that anger 
towards him. He seeks to blast some unsuspecting stand-in. I heard this, uh, read this story a week ago about the uptick in road rage in Austin, Texas. It's actually included a few murders, so be careful out there. Um, now, that rage in road rage, I don't think it's really about the person didn't turn on their blinker, you know? It's something else, but it's being projected at a fellow driver. Now, Cain doesn't really have a lot of other drivers to flip off. Because all he has to work with is his brother. And in his rage, he kills him. Now, this is the first recorded human death. And it's a brother at the hands of a brother. Fratricide. It's actually a word for it. Now, is it premeditated? Like first degree? Or is it a crime of passion? Second degree murder? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know if he just got super angry, started punching him, and then, oh, whoops, I, I killed him. We, we, we don't know. But what we do know is that Abel died. His body and his soul separated. That's what happens in death. And so because of the presence of sin in that system, now they get to experience this death, this limp and lifeless body. This has never happened before in the history of human beings, and sin really was crouching at the door. And, and it really did want to kill. It wanted to destroy, and it resulted in much more than a dead brother. It resulted in separation, okay? So um, this is the second point. Sin separates. So sin had separated Cain from God. Right? He had no interest in relating with and, tr and trusting God, submitting to his rightful authority uh, in the cosmos, even though Almighty God was moving toward him with grace and truth. Sin separated Cain from his brother. I mean, literally, he had separated so much that he removed any possibility of relationship from that day forward. Sin had separated Abel's body from his soul, as I said earlier. God had told Adam and Eve, you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And we've been saying that's a cosmic condemnation kind of, of, of word, but it does include physical death. And so, just as promised, this is what happens. People die, and it's a separation. Now, Abel's death is not the first, it is the first human death, but it, it won't be the last. So, Genesis 5, we see this, uh, this little... Um, genealogy. There's lots of genealogies in the Bible. I, I know sometimes you're just like, just skip over that. Who cares? Um, this one's an interesting one. Um, here's a little snippet. Genesis 5, verse 4. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the, set, the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after the, he fathered Kenan 815 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Over and over. It's like a depressing song with a bad chorus, and he died. 
and he died, and he died. Sin is crouching at the door of every human being. It seems to be winning the day. The big finish, the the, the not-so-grand finale of every human being, they die. They die. Sin has an infection rate of 100%. The diagnosis, death. You talk about an epidemic. Wow. 100% infection rate. And 100% death. It's an epidemic, and patient zero is Adam. Apostle Paul describes it this way in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See what Apostle Paul's explaining, how the, the sin entered into the system, right? And it infected the system, and the result is death. He goes on in verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Sin separates, in every sense of that word, separates us in our relationship with God, self, others, and the entire planet. Now, what does God do with Cain after he kills his brother? Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So God moves toward Cain, and he moves toward him with grace and truth. God is a a, a really great shepherd. You see this in the the last section we looked at. We see this in this section. He moves toward Cain, and he asks, where where is Abel? Reminiscent of the question to Adam, where are you, (laughs) Adam? And Cain is quick with a snarky reply. What, am I my, my brother's keeper? Right? Am I in charge of my brother? I mean, he's a grown man. Like, he can take care of himself. I'm busy here, okay? Have you seen the thorns and the thistles in my garden? I, I got stuff to do here. So don't be asking me about my brother. God moves toward him again. What have you done? Cain's got no snarky reply at that point. He's silent. And then God gives him truth. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of the voiceless Abel is crying to me. The darkest and seemingly silent places of deadly dehumanization, those silent places, God hears it. He hears it. It's crying out. The ethnic cleansing of genocidal hatred, God hears it. Gun killings by dirty cops and violent gangbangers, God hears it. Teenage drug deaths served up by drug cartels and drug dealers, God hears it. Babies killed in the womb, God hears it. It's crying out to Him. Human beings are created in the image of God, and therefore they're given special status 
in the creation. It affords them justice when they are dehumanized. And the ultimate dehumanization is murder. And God cares about it. And he says, Abel's blood is crying out for justice. Now, you expect God to just vaporize Cain right there. That's not what he does. Look at what he does. Verse 11. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away today, away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So there's consequences. Uh, God moves toward him with grace, but he also moves toward him with truth. There's, there's, there's consequences to Cain's action, and it's a lot of separation. I don't know if you notice that language, right? Separation from the earth. In some ways, he's just republishing what we read in Genesis 3, saying that the ground is cursed, and uh, you're going to experience this futility in your working of the ground. It's a sin problem, and its effects are systemic. It has affected the entire creation, right? It's not just a one-to-one correlation to Cain's uh, actions. There, there, there's more going on here, and God keeps trying to explain to Cain uh, the systemic nature of sin. Sin and its effects are, are crouching at the door, and it separates from the earth. Even the way that Cain describes what is happening in his relationship with the earth is the language of separation, right? Verse 14, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. It's, it's a language of separation. And so he's worked that ground and lived on that ground and named that ground and shaped that ground, and now he's having to move away from that ground. Now, obviously, he's going to be going to some other ground, but he, he's, he's getting it to some degree, like what God's saying, there's separation. There's also separation from others, right? It says, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain is going to experience isolation. This is what sin does. It separates. It isolates human beings. Um, it isolates us from uh, each other in our families. It isolates each other in, in society, uh, in friend groups, in churches, in, you name it, right? You don't have to look far to see examples of separation within the human family. And Cain is losing relationship with not only his land, but also his family, right? Whatever Adam and Eve kind of relationship they have and whatever future family they're going to have, Cain is experiencing separation from others. Cain's also experiencing further separation from God, right? Not only have you driven me away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. This is the most tragic of all, that Cain is separated from God because of sin. And he's sort of concerned about that, but his main concern really is his self and how that separation from God is going to affect him personally. And it's ironic that the killer is, is wanting protection from being killed. You see the irony in that? But we, we get it, right? I mean, self-preservation is so built in, right? It's just, it, it's just so in us. Uh, as fallen sinners, right? And he's just d deeply worried about being killed. And we expect, or at least I expect God to go, sorry, dude, man, you should have thought of that before you killed your brother, right? That's not what God does. 
Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Edom. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he had built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. Grace is extended. Grace is extended. Cain deserves nothing from God except death. But he asks for mercy, and he gets it. He's marked by God. We have no idea what that means. But somehow it's enough to protect him. Protect him from any future would-be killers. Now Cain gets married. We have no idea where he gets a wife. Genesis doesn't seem to be concerned about that question. Doesn't try to answer it, all right? Lots of different theories about that. I'm not going to waste sermon time talking about those theories. We can talk about it at Lazarus later. Um, but he, he, he starts procreating. He builds and, and, and institutes a city. It's the first city of all time. And it's Cain creating this out of the common grace of God. And you see that and you go, okay, well, that's that. Like, okay, we got through that. Everything's good now. Like, we're, we're, we're procreating and administrating, and Cain learned his lesson, and everything's cool. No, everything is not cool. Sin proliferates. Sin proliferates. This is the third point. Verse 19, Lamech took two wives. There's your first institu- institute of uh, polygamy right there. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And the brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventyfold. So again, we, we see human beings, they're, they're, they're procreating, they're administrating, I mean, they're learning how to fashion the raw resources of the creation into new things, even instruments for their entertainment. I mean, that's kind of cool, right? Like they still have the image of God in them. They're doing good good things to some degree, but then we also see the proliferation of sin instead of the demise of sin, which is kind of what we were hoping for after Cain and all of it went down with him. It continues to crouch at the door of every human being, and again, it seems to be winning the day. Cain's great, great, great grandson, all right, that's a lot of years passing, ends up making Cain's murder look tame, Cain's murder of Abel. Lamech not only introduces polygamy, which is really the worst form of misogyny, but not only does that, he kills people for merely striking him. This is no justice. This is instead senseless escalation of violence and death. And on top of this, 
Lamech mocks God and saying, oh, remember that warning God gave about Cain, about sevenfold vengeance? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. I got 77-fold. Right? Literally mocking the creator God. Sin is crouching at the door of every human being. And it des- desire is contrary to, desires to control every human being. And when it's not put in check, it rules over human beings and human societies. And this is what we're looking at in a microcosm that has a lot of macro truth to it in understanding the effects of sin on human beings. But we also see a second story. We see the story of God. This is one way to think about, especially thinking about the Old Testament especially, you see this thread of the story of sin, but you see the thread of the story of God. Uh, you, you see sin crouching, but, but God is shepherding. You see sin separating, but God is saving. You, you see sin proliferating, but God is, what is he doing? Right? His efforts don't seem to be bearing much fruit over in Cain's family line. But there does seem to be something good happening over at Adam and Eve's place. And we read about that at the end of the chapter. Thank God this is paragraphs in here. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son. She called his name Seth. She said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. And even the way that Eve talks about this son is different than the way she talked about the birth of Cain. Now, you compare this back when she had Cain. She said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. When she has Seth, she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. There's been a change of heart, even in Eve's heart. She doesn't think, wow, look at this baby that I had that was like 50-50%, me and God, we did this together. She's like, this is a gift from God. Seth is a gift from God. I have nothing except for what God gives me, the creator, the sustainer. It's a, it's a, it's a cosmology shift for Eve. And you can see it in these comments that she makes regarding Cain and then later about Seth. But not only that, this, this line, right? This, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Sin is proliferating, and somehow God is sovereignly writing the story. He is actively at work in the midst of this very dark chapter. So Genesis is not primarily the story of sin. It's the story of God in the context of a world that is being ravaged by sin, right? Um, so how does this apply to us? And I, I, I'm thinking, you already are thinking some of these things about how this renews your own mind about how the world works and how sin works and our own uh, ruling over sin and what does that look like? Well, let's talk about it. So sin is crouching, but God is shepherding. 
Sin is crouching, but God is shepherding. Right? We see sin having its way with Cain. The result is catastrophic. Uh, he gets angry. When he gets called out on it, he gets angrier. And in his anger, he murders his brother. And God shepherds. Right? God shepherds. He insists on justice for Abel's unjust killing. Absolutely. But he moves toward the murderer with grace and with truth. Sin is crouching, but God is his shepherd. And this is true for you and me as well, right? We have sin that's crouching at our door. And we may think our, our sin is so crushing that God could never relate to us. Or we're thinking our sin's no big deal and we're diminishing it. Um, or we're thinking I've been unjustly sinned against. All these can be a reason to, to run away from God. And I'm saying to you this morning, oh, he's moving towards you. He's moving towards you with grace and with truth. God draws near to innocent victims and perpetrators. And we're all a combination of both. Sin, sin has committed crimes against us, but we have also perpetrated crimes <laughs> against others, the earth, against God himself. God draws near to the innocent and to the perpetrator. He moves toward us in our isolation, right? Sin is separating, but God is saving. Now, God can't overlook sin. He is a just God. He must deal with sin justly. The wages of sin, ultimately, are a cosmic condemnation, which includes physical death, but even more, right? It's a, it's a cosmic kind of a penalty. And so how can a holy God, who's just, move toward sinners? <laughs> like Cain, like you, like me. How can he do that? Well, the writer of Hebrews explains it this way. And uh, he, he starts by writing about Mount Sinai, which is a scary experience for the people of God in a lot of ways. Hebrews 12, verse 18 says, For you have not come... To what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. It's just summarizing what happened in Exodus. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is what sinners deserve, right? A distant Holy God, who's full of wrath. This is what we see in Mount Sinai to some degree. But then there's also mercy. So the writer of Hebrews says this next. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made Perfect. Like, wait, what? How, how could I, who is worthy of the wrath of Mount Sinai, also dwell in the presence uh, of, of, of a God who loves me on Mount Zion? Right? How, how can that be? And then the punchline is verse 24 of Hebrews 12. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, than the blood of Abel. 
And he picks up the story. Just, it's just a, like a brief mention. But he picks this story up to tell us something about Jesus, right? Because Jesus uh, is an innocent, right? And, and so his blood is crying out something, and Abel's blood is crying out something. We've talked about what Abel's blood is crying out. It's, it's crying out, justice! Give justice for this innocent who's been killed. It's not right. God, you must be just. But, but, but what does Jesus' blood cry out? Because it was also spilled. He was also an innocent. His blood is crying out, mercy! Mercy. It's a better word. It's a better word. It's not a, a word that is negating justice. Right? Like, like Jesus is dying because of justice to some degree. Right? Paul says in Romans 3, he's demonstrating God's justice when he's dying on the cross. That the, the guilt of sin must be paid for. The, the just judge that is God, he cannot let that go. But he's also paying that price so that he can extend mercy to sinners like you and me. <laughs> and that blood of Jesus is crying out a better word. It's crying out mercy to sinners. Blood that has paid the price of justice and is now offering the opportunity for us to be forgiven of the sin that's been crouching at our door that has ruled over us, both in power and in penalty. Jesus' death covers both sinful behavior, but sinful condition. We, we can't do anything about that. I mean, we can try to, like, grit our teeth this week and try a little bit harder and not sin as much, but we can't fix the condition. It's a 100% infection rate, and the diagnosis is death. And the only one that can remedy that is Jesus. And he is offering this better word through his blood shed on the cross. God the shepherd offers himself as a sacrifice to save and to repair the separation. Hallelujah. And this is the good news right here, guys. <laughs> this is the good news. And this salvation doesn't just save us from sin and the sinful condition. It saves us to a life of fighting sin and its effects in our lives and the lives of others. There's a lot going on here, right? Sin is proliferating. Here's what God's doing. God is restraining evil and will eventually reign over evil. He's restraining it and he will reign over it. We take great hope in this, right? The serpent and the sin, and the sin have been crushed by Jesus. That sin that was crouching at our door, waiting like a predatory animal to kill us, it's been killed by Jesus. He has died in our place so that we could be forgiven and be given new life. And we get glimpses of this in this life, and we will see it fully in the life to come. And the biggest glimpse is the resurrection. When Jesus resurrects, he's showing us he has absolute authority over sin and death and hell. And he's, 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 he is a recreation, a body that had just been killed and brutalized, now absolutely restored and perfect. And Jesus is saying, 
that's just the beginning. That's just the start of what I'm going to do to put this creation, this cosmos back together. But he also gives us the ability to, to have a glimpse in his people, in his followers who are in Christ. That means we get to participate in the restraint on evil and the reign over evil. We are our brother's and sister's keeper. We are our brother's and sister's keeper, right? As those who have been made new in Christ, we, we no longer have to live lives that are ruled over by sin, right? Because of the gospel, we can reject self-centeredness and self-reliance and just selfish ways of living altogether. And we can say to the sin that is crouching at our door, take a hike. I'm not letting you rule over me. How, how is that possible? Because of the gospel, because of what God has done to, in, the, in the grace of the gospel, right? Uh, the Apostle Paul, he, he describes it this way in Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Another way to think about it, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the sin that's crouching at your door and wants to rule over you. Because you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you through your faith in Christ, you can say no to that sin. He goes on to say, now the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives this long, horrible list, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. He goes on and on and on about all these ways that the, the creation and, and human beings are just being torn apart. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law. And in that, he's describing the coming back together of human beings to what they were originally created to be like in the grace of the gospel by the Spirit. And this isn't just about your own personal victory over sin. Notice Paul is mentioning this fruit of the Spirit and the way he's illustrating it is by things that are expressed in community. right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I mean, you can't really do that just in the privacy of your own room. You've got to be in the church expressing the fruit of the Spirit. This is a glimpse of, of, of God's ruling over sin and its effects. Is it perfect? No. Will it ever be perfect here on this side? No, no. But it's a glimpse. It's a glimpse of God's rule and reign. So we say to God, and he says, you know, where's, where's your brother? Where's your sister? We're not going to say, what, 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 am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? We're going to say, sign me up. Sign me up. I want, I want to take care of my brother. I want to take care of my sister because Jesus took care of me. Jesus, one of the ways the scripture talks about Jesus is our brother. And, and partly it, the meaning of it is he took on human flesh, became like one of us so that he could be his brother and his sister's keeper and take care of us. Right? And so... If, if, if you're walking in here this morning and, and you were thinking, oh, I'm just going to kind of get a religious pick-me-up this morning. Um, sorry, came to the wrong church. Um, but what you are hearing is the good news. And I mean, it is so good. It can save you from your sin. It can save you from yourself. It can save you from what has been crouching at your door and occasionally or maybe more than occasionally ruling over you 
and you were wondering, how on earth could I ever get free? Well, there's good news this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this, his death, his burial, his resurrection, this is the good news. And it frees you from both the penalty of that sin and the power of that sin. We're reminded of this every time we come to this table. Um, when Jesus was uh, betrayed, the night in which he was betrayed, the night before his death, uh, he took bread, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, instead of saying, am I my brother's keeper? He's like, sign me up. I'm going to lay my life down to save my brothers, my sisters, bring them into, back into right relationship with God. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. That's a powerful statement. The sin that's been crouching at every human being's door seeking to rule over that human being, so much so that it kills them. And he's saying, I'm going to die tomorrow because I'm going to kill sin. I'm going to kill its effects. And so he drinks the cup of wrath that sinners deserve so he can offer a cup of salvation to sinners like you and me. And we receive that by faith. We receive it as a free gift. And so if you've received that by faith, you're a child of God. And we welcome you to the table to to experience that with us this morning, to take the bread and the cup. If you've not yet done that and you're like, okay, I'm curious, I'm interested, we're really glad that you're here. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you not to take these things because this is a signifier that you believe in what Christ has done for you on the cross. So take this time instead to pray and think about what you're hearing. And then I hope you'll reach out to somebody in the room, even myself, and have further conversations about what you've heard this morning. So let's pray. God, you are are good and just. You, You are so gentle and kind and you, you show wrath when things have been done against you and against your righteous law. Lord, um, I, I pray that we would be able to get a sense of the God that you are as we looked at this sermon text and that it would clarify, shine a light on what you did at the cross. We're, just, we're marveling at that this morning, what you did for us to, to take on the effects of sin, the ultimate effect, which is death. And to do that in order to extend mercy to us. Thank you that your blood cries a better word. And that it is mercy. It is mercy, God. And so I I pray that you would just help us to to receive that for the first time this morning. Or to receive it anew, afresh. As we realize uh, the ramifications of what you've done for us. And that in that grace, in that spirit, we, we can be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. Lord, help that gospel to work its way down into our hearts and lives this morning and then work its way out into uh, our community uh, as a church. And we pray you would bless this cup, bless this bread, 
and uh, our time together as we get to celebrate this uh, with you, but also as a community in Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.